Good morning, everyone. Uh, and today's first reading is from Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It's on page 672. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the second reading is uh, Luke 19. It's on page uh, 743. It's verses 11 to 44. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money, in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minna away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, He already has ten. He replied, I tell you, I, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. 
As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would, what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dice you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of God. Uh, Some strong words to finish that reading, weren't they? Uh, I'd encourage you to have that part of Luke chapter 19 open in front of you. We're going to be looking a little more closely at it. If you've uh, just joined us today, if you're visiting, passing through, uh, it's great to have you amongst us. Uh, Particularly, uh, it's great that you've come just before Christmas as we see the king come into his kingdom, so to speak. Uh, It's the end of uh, a long series we've been doing on Luke. Uh, but let's pray again that God might speak to us. Our Lord and Father, we, we give you praise that you are the mighty God. Uh, we thank you that we can give you that praise and we realise that if we refused, uh, the whole of creation would cry out, giving you the praise that you deserve. Uh, Father, we ask though that our praise would not merely uh, today be our lips and our uh, voices raised in song, but we would praise you by living lives that are different. Father, we ask that your spirit would be powerfully at work in us, that as we hear the word, uh, you would be applying it to each of us as we need it to be applied, Uh, that you'd be stripping away uh, parts of our life that are unpleasing to you, and you'd be rebuilding and reforming us in such a way that we would bring glory and honour to the Lord Jesus in everything we do. Uh, And so we pray, give us humble hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Where do you begin to give an account of your life? Unless you're a, a regular reader of obituaries, and I'm yet to meet the person who does that, most of us don't consider how a life can be summed up. But every now and then we do stop uh, to account for our existence. You know, when a, when a new life enters the world, like you and did earlier this week, it, it's a time to stop and kind of think about, oh, what's life all about? Or, or perhaps times when loved ones go. It's a time to account for life. Uh, and perhaps for you, Uh, And and our culture more broadly, Christmas is a time to do a little accounting. Uh, Songs are sung about Santa uh, who sorts the naughty from the nice, and so you better watch out apparently. Uh, The latest uh, rendition of Christmas Carol is on at the cinemas. Apparently this one's closer to the original. I haven't seen the film, but I have read the book. Uh, And if uh, Dickens' book is about anything, then it's about having to give an account for your life. 
Uh, the ghost of Scrooge's dead partner, if you don't know the story, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it, but uh, uh, the, the ghost of his dead partner, Marley, visits him. And Marley, the ghost of him, is bound in chains, and the chains were, were formed in his life, his actions in life. And Scrooge attempts to, to kind of compliment his ghostly partner uh, by saying, but you were always a good man of business. And Marley's spirit responds, business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands, Mankind was my business, the common welfare was my business, charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop in water, uh, of, uh, sorry, a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. You know, the, the story of Christmas Carol is, is written to inspire people to account for themselves, to live differently, to take an interest in other people. Uh, in modern Christmas, even now, we we are reminded of the needs of others. We, we see the value these days of buying those ethical presents, like the, the tier funds, you know, arguably the best Christmas catalogue ever. But it's more than just one-off actions, isn't it? It's more than just once a year that we need to give an account for ourselves. How would you account for your life? Uh, just now, in your head, uh, come up with those points. How would you account for yourself meaningfully? Because we long to think that our life matters, wouldn't we? Uh, the movie Shall We Dance has a quote uh, trying to explain how it's marriage that accounts and gives meaning to life. Uh, Susan Sarandon's character puts it this way. Uh, we need a witness to our lives. There's a billion people on the planet. I mean, what does any one life really mean? Uh, but in a marriage, you're promising to care about everything, the good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the mundane things, all of it, all of the time, every day. You're saying... Your life will not go unnoticed because I'll notice it. Your life will not go unwitnessed because I'll be your witness. You know, there's a claim the meaning comes because people are watching you. But as Christian people, we're acutely aware that we are witnessed all the time in everything we do, that one day we will be giving an account for our existence. You know, both the, the classic creeds of Orthodox Christianity, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, both declare that Jesus is going to come and he will judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. That is, the quickened, the living, those who are, are Christians brought back to life by his spirit, and the dead, those who are outside of Christ. Though both will be judged. And we say when we affirm those creeds, we say we believe that truth. And so what account are you going to hand in to Christ on the last day? You know, we, we don't need a witness of another person to manufacture meaning in our lives. We are being witnessed already by our maker who gave us meaning. And so we must live meaningfully knowing we'll give an account. So Jesus' long journey is climaxing here in Luke 19. Uh, and even as he rides in triumphantly through the gates, he prepares his disciples for the reality that his kingdom is not about to be completely evidenced. Uh, they, like us, need to realise there is a delay uh, where the gifts that he has given his servants must be accounted for. Uh, there are two points I want us to look at this morning as we look at Luke 19. Um, the first, which is the much longer one, uh, is how we might use our gifts positively. Uh, and secondly, we need to know the king to whom we'll give account. So first, using your gifts positively. Uh, in verse 11, we read, At long last, Jesus is near Jerusalem. 
So way back in Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face to head down to Jerusalem. Uh, and if you thought, you know, if you've been here regularly, if you thought this series was pretty long in Luke, and if you can remember that, you know, earlier in the year we did eight weeks on the first part of his journey, you might sympathise a little with the disciples that, oh, last they're near. You know, these guys have been travelling with him for three years. And at last, it's near. They're near to Jerusalem. They're near to the city of God's king. They're near to the city that King David, uh, a thousand years before, had stormed in and taken and established as his seat of power. Jesus has still got you know, 25 kilometres or so before he gets there. It's, it's an incline, it's uphill, uh, about a thousand metre rise. But after three years of travelling around with Jesus, you know, he's near verse 11. Verse 29, again, he approaches, that is, he comes near. Again, verse 37, he's near. Once more in verse 41, he approaches Jerusalem, he's near. It's so close for the disciples, they can taste it. Which is why, exactly why Jesus has to tell a parable. Verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. See, Christ's kingdom is not a a, a political and an earthly one. Yes, he's going to march into Jerusalem and lay claim of his kingdom, but it's not the way they expect. It's not through a military campaign. And so he tells a, a parable to his followers that they need to use the interval well. It's a story for us as well. We live in that same interval. Uh, it's a pop culture story of the day. Um, Herod uh, had previously had to go up to Rome himself to take possession of his kingdom, uh, the kingdom that he'd inherited. And he was so unpopular that a, a group of people had sent a delegate, the citizens had sent a delegate to, to try and prevent uh, Herod taking power, which is remarkably similar to the nobleman's circumstances that Jesus tells in verse 12. Uh, he leaves, this nobleman leaves instructions to ten servants Uh, And he leaves them three months' salary in cash with this instruction, put the money to work until I come back. And as the story works out, as Jesus tells it, there are three types of people who emerge from that. Uh, Type A are the rebellious citizens. You know, those who refuse no matter what to acknowledge his existence, acknowledge his rule. Uh, Christ is speaking there about his, his contemporary opposition. Uh, at that stage, it's the Pharisees, it's the chief priests, but within a week, it was going to be the very crowds that praised him who wanted to reject him. The parable speaks in no uncertain terms about the outcome of that kind of rebellion. Verse 27, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Uh, It's a hard word and a strong word because there are still those types of people today, aren't there, who will not bow before King Jesus. And we know them. And there'll be a time of accounting. Then there's a type B. There's those who are faithful servants, at least faithful to to different degrees. Um, The the first servant takes the, the minor, multiplies it tenfold. The second, uh, he gets a five-time return, still a good return. The servants are praised in verse 17. They're given more because they have proven responsible and they have proven capable. But Jesus is actually most interested in the type C character, the presumptuous insider. So he actually spends more time in, in the story fleshing out the details of the third servant. 
So there's this servant who takes the money, but lazily he kind of slips it into the corner of a rag that he uses for a sweat cloth. Uh, And he accuses his master of being hard, a hard man, a man who takes what's not his. Uh, Now, I don't think that that evaluation really squares with what we've already seen of this master who actually gives a lot of responsibility over um, and rewards generously people who've done well in his service. But even if it was true, the master condemns him with his own words. If the servant, if you really believed I was a hard man, if you really believed I would take what wasn't mine, why didn't you act on it? But he didn't. He, he did nothing. He'd been given much and did nothing. And so what was his was taken away. And, and Jesus is crafting the parable in such a way that we pay particular attention to him. The, the fleshed out details. The fact that, did you notice there were ten servants at the start? And then the other seven, they just kind of fade off into obscurity. There's nothing more to be raised with them. Once we've got to that kind of third servant, we don't need to worry about the rest. Uh, And even there's an element of intrigue about the evaluation of this third servant. So we're told really clearly about the fate of the rebels and we're told really clearly about the future of those who've been faithful. But where does this servant stand? Is is he going to scrape into the kingdom or, or is he cast out? Jesus wants us more than anything to mull over this third servant in that gap before he returns, to think over that presumptuous insider. So Christ's kingdom is not going to come immediately. We don't know when it's going to come. Perhaps it will come before Carol's tonight. No, don't know. But when he does come, he will ask for an account. And those who oppose him will be cut down, and those who are faithful will be rewarded. Uh, we've got to be careful, this doesn't undermine that uh, salvation is by, by grace alone, not by our works. Uh, but it does open up for us the possibility uh, of different experiences in heaven. Now, m- most likely, I suspect, in terms of relationship. Uh, so the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians that, that they themselves are his crown and joy. Yet it may be that uh, the rewards of faithfulness uh, for you and I is that... We'll just try and pretend that that person is not uh, leaving a message. I feel like I need to talk over it. My apologies. Uh, It may be that the rewards of heaven are are just that we will have the opportunity to to be amongst and share in in relationship with people that we ourselves introduce to Jesus, people we ourselves actually encourage in Christ. That may be the richer experience of what heaven offers for different people. It it may be to do with proximity to God. Uh, There was a time... You know, where the disciples of Jesus came to him and said, oh, can we sit at your right and your left? And Jesus rebukes them, not for the fact that there'll be people on his right and left, but he rebukes them for their audacity. And yet he doesn't correct the fact that there will be some on his right and left. It may just be there's different closeness to God, different opportunities to experience his presence and company. See, when Christ takes an account, some are going to be cast out. Others will be enriched and we are left wondering what's going to happen to that type C servant. You know, this insider who was given much but squandered it all. You know, maybe it's a little like that scenario, 1 Corinthians 3, where uh, the unfaithful work of a Christian is burnt up even though they themselves will be saved as one escaping through the flames. See, one day you and I will give an account. What will we say? More importantly, what will Jesus say? 
Yes, you can be confident of the salvation uh, because of Christ's perfect work. But wouldn't it be a delight to have the Lord look at you on that last day and look you in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, would we really want the account of your life given by God to be, yeah, he's a wicked servant, but he scraped in. Yeah, she squandered everything wickedly, but she's still here. So in the time that he has delayed, how will you use the many gifts that he has, he has entrusted to you to expand his investment, to grow his kingdom? So we're not going to be judged on what we haven't been given, but what we are given. And it's clear that that third servant, he was working, he just wasn't doing any work with the money that had been entrusted to him. He was still busy, he had at least a sweat cloth to put the money in. But he wasn't building for his master. So we must use our gifts positively. In verse 12's language, we need to put it to work. God has gifted us all, um, our passions, our intelligences, our networks, our cultural identity, our wealth, our workplace, our personalities, our homes, our families. Uh, We're all gifted. We're all given to generously. We're all given to differently. But we're all expected to expand Christ's glory, not ours. Uh, Three tips for us to use our gifts, knowing we're going to be held accountable. First is remember why they were given. Christ gives gifts not for your glory, not for our comfort, not for my reputation. He gives us gifts that we might love him with everything we have. He gives us gifts that we might serve other people. He gives us gifts so that that we and others would grow in knowledge of him. Use your gifts knowing why they were given. A a Christian family I knew, they had the uh, largest house in their suburb of Liverpool, um, I mean by that, southwest Sydney. If you've never had the opportunity to get on the M5 and discover there's more to Sydney than the lower North Shore, why not go and visit Liverpool? They were there in, uh, in the largest house in southwest Sydney, a uh, brick house, but it never bred resentment with others at their church because uh, of the way they used it. Uh, they were hospitable to lots of people. They, they hosted meetings to study the Bible for, for Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, they offered it to youth group activities Uh, It was a gift that built others. They remembered Jesus' priorities and they put the gift to work. Second, uh, be realistic about your limitations so you don't compromise all of Christ's priorities. It's not catchy, is it? But, you know, it's on the screen so you can write it down. Uh, As Christian people, we we, we mustn't just seek to do just a couple of Jesus' priorities and ignore the rest. It isn't enough to say, I'll work on patience but I'll ignore kindness. Uh, It isn't enough to say, I love Christian people, but I won't love the outsider. We actually need to maintain with our gifts all of Jesus' priorities, even if we can't do it perfectly. We can't just use some uh, of our gifts and ignore the others. In part, that's going to mean a bit of honesty in conceding you just can't do things quite as well as you think. Uh, When I was at uni, there was a, a push... Uh, in some parts of the Christian group there to say that you can't study medicine and be an active Christian. And so there was an encouragement from some to say you should drop out of med. Uh, The demands were too high in that field. If you keep going, you're going to end up dropping out of church and and you won't be able to serve people in broader areas. Um, Now, the advice is wrong, uh, but it does tap into some truths. Uh, The the truths that 
Um, it isn't godly to pursue just one area of Christian life at the expense of all others. That bit's true. And it's also true that you know, many med students did get overwhelmed and only followed a small section of Christ's priorities. That bit's true as well. Um, just the analysis is wrong. It's wrong advice. Uh, I know of godly Christian doctors who are passionate uh, to grow in their knowledge of Christ and are heavily involved in serving other people beyond what they're paid for. It's not that it's impossible to be a godly doctor, it's just not possible for as many people who attempt it. Not everyone is as capable as that. I wonder if that isn't a common problem, that we, that we overestimate our abilities. We, we don't realise our limitations and so we end up overreaching in one area at the expense of lots of other godly priorities. Now, so it's not wrong at all for a Christian to do an MBA, but for some Christians it might be. If it means you, you can't keep growing and knowing Christ and you can't manage to love your family and you, you can't make a connect group and you can't serve others outside work and you, you know, those kind of things, well, you might need to be honest and look at yourself and realise your own limits. The MBA is not at all inconsistent with godliness, but it might be not godly for you. It might be beyond you. And, and don't mishear me, this is not just a secular problem. Perhaps a little more darkly, when I was at uh, theological college, there was a push for students at theological college, a Bible college, to minimise their church involvement so that they could be focused on their study without distractions. So you know, don't go to things beyond the, the service and the group that you're involved in because you've got to get your study done. You know, it's the kind of advice that uh, if you know, most ministers, if they heard it given to other people in their church, they'd condemn it. And yet, because it was in theology... Uh, it's kind of got away with. It was said because it recognised limitations, but it gave the wrong solution. And just because it was in an area of studying theology didn't make it any more godly. There's no excuse there to ignore Christ's priorities. In the same way that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for keeping the law's minutia at the expense of other parts of God's law, when Jesus calls for an account, I suspect he will want to know how you use all your gifts, not just the ones that you excelled in and enjoyed doing. Third, third tip, be brave and generous with your gifts. So the heart of the third servant's problem is that he misunderstands the master. And so what's it lead him to do? Uh, it leads him to conservative inaction. He does nothing. And he figures that doing nothing is better than failing. And yet when Jesus turns up, or the master turns up, he's rebuked. He's not rebuked that he failed to produce. He's rebuked that he failed to try. God has given us much and we need to be brave and we need to be generous with what we have. We actually need to take some risks in what we do to build Christ's kingdom and not always play it conservatively. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a, uh, the famous instruction to go and sin boldly. Yeah, it's fascinating, intriguing, isn't it? It sounds wrong. Uh, you kind of do need to put it in context because otherwise it is wrong. Uh, he wrote it in a letter to um, a more conservative friend of his, a guy called Philip Melanchthon. Uh, at the height of the Reformation, uh, Melanchthon was worried about the, the radical reforms that they'd embarked on now that they'd kind of rediscovered the joys of grace and the Bible and they were seeking to reform the church. Um, Melanchthon was worried about things like, you know, what, what, if, what if we're on the wrong course to allow monks and nuns to go and get married? You know, what, what if we're on the wrong course? What if we're, we're sinning in receiving communion from someone who's not a priest? Those kind of concerns. And Luther wrote this. If you're a preacher of grace, 
then preach a true and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. God doesn't save people who are only fictitious sinners. Be a sinner, sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death and the world. Sin boldly, give it a go. Uh, In good faith, try things and don't worry if you fail. Don't worry even if it's wrong because grace is better than even our sin and can cover it over. If you make an error, that's okay. We believe in real grace for real sin. But take a risk and give it a go. See what God's priorities are and chase after them and risk it, even if you're wrong, that you might give a good account when the king returns. And so finally, let's quickly look at that king, the one to whom you'll give an account. In the rest of our passage, we see that Christ is the king of compassion and authority. So he's there east of the city, the Mount of Olives. Jesus sends his uh, couple of disciples to go get an unridden donkey. Um, he's kind of commandeering a vehicle. Um, it was not unheard of in the day. It was a practice called Angaria. Nobles, rabbis, they were allowed to do that kind of thing. I need your donkey, quick. Think policeman, highway, Hollywood movie, that kind of thing. Uh, and it wasn't uncommon for a, a noble to ride a donkey. Uh, and it indicated that he was there coming in the humility of peace rather than armed to the teeth on a war horse. Uh, it's an allusion back to that reading that Mike gave us from Zechariah 9. The unridden donkey even goes further back to allusions to, to Genesis 49 where there's a, a king who's so wealthy, the king who's going to come from Judah's line. He's so wealthy that he doesn't need to ride his donkey. In fact, he can let his donkey be tethered up to a vineyard and eat to its heart's content. Um, here is a, a great king, a king of authority and lavish wealth and power, and Jesus is going to lay claim by these actions to the authority of God. It's not just by the donkey. Uh, The words that you would have seen shouted in verse 38, they're from Psalm 118. They're sung of the king as he came up to the temple. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? You see his divine authority in the way he he controls and orchestrates and intimately knows what's going to happen. In verse 32, everything happens as he foretold. We mustn't make a mistake. He is the king who comes with complete divine authority. And and the tragedy is no one recognises it. Well, people don't really recognise it. The Pharisees, they see what he's claiming and they want to rebuke him. And Christ's response, which we'd sung in a song earlier, you might have known, Almighty God, if we did not praise, the rocks would cry out. It's straight out of here. He's alluding to uh, things like in Genesis 4 and Habakkuk 2 where creation cries out to God when creation witnesses injustice and it would be unjust for the king not to be praised and the rejection that he is about to get in a week later is the greatest injustice ever. So we give account to the one who has all authority. You praise from friends, acknowledgement from peers, envy from our neighbours, approval from parents. We like all those things, don't we? But there's only one opinion that matters in the end, the king. And thankfully, he doesn't just have authority, he has compassion. Now, in verse 41, the heart of the king is exposed. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept. You know, that, that, that language of... The enemy's slaughter in verse 27 has to be tempered with these tears. Jesus foretells 
in those verses what's going to happen in AD, 40, AD 70. Sorry. Um, Titus of Rome came storming in Jerusalem, knocked down the walls, knocked down the temple. It was never rebuilt. God's holy city was destroyed. And so Christ comes weeping into Jerusalem, knowing, knowing, yes, he's going to approach his death, knowing, yes, he's going to have the judgment of his father poured out upon him, and yet he doesn't weep for himself. His tears are over unbelievers. For those who didn't recognise peace when it came to him, God takes no joy in the death of sinners, no delight whatsoever. We give a... We give an account to the king of all power whose heart is filled with compassion, the one who wept for the city and the people he loved, the one who called on forgiveness even as they were driving nails into his hands a week after this event. Uh, George Gitto has won the 1995 Blake Prize for Religious Artwork. Uh, that's his picture, the preacher. Uh, the work was inspired by a real incident. In his words, he was in Rwanda. He um, was horrific. We saw children killed before our eyes. We were going in and getting the wounded out as the people were macheteing and shooting and killing. And suddenly there was this guy standing in the middle of the people who were dying all around him. And he just began to give this sermon in one of those beautiful, melodious African voices, mingling English and French and Rwandan, and quoting those sections of the New Testament to them. Those bits which give hope and tell us about the possibility of an afterlife. I thought it took tremendous courage because he exposed himself and yet he had the presence of mind to know what other people needed and they needed some kind of reassurance and he gave it to them. Very clearly it reminds us of the compassion of Christ, doesn't it? You know, facing his death, exposing himself, weeping for others, seeking to give hope. Our reading of My King's Tears this week, I was shown my lack of compassion. Uh, we were set to door knock Thursday night. It was an inconvenient time on an inconvenient day. Uh, and it was only kind of reading of Christ's tears that it pushed me to do the inconvenient. Now, seeing the heart of God, he pushes us to stand like that preacher, doesn't it, in Gitto's painting, to, to offer hope in a dying world, to give a good account for when the Lord returns, to prepare others for that time. Christ will return one day. What account will you give? A rebellious citizen, a wicked servant? Or will you hear those beautiful words, well done, good servant? Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for Jesus, the King of all power, the King of all compassion. Father, we thank you for the way that he has been so generous in gifting us. We thank you that he delays in returning so that others might come to repent. We thank you for the opportunities he gives for us to love and serve other people and to build up his kingdom, to speak of the one who is to come. And Father, we pray that you would help us to give a good account of our lives, that we would use well what you have given us to produce great fruit for you, for the benefit of others and for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.